Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Jane, I can't believe that you talked about multiple hypothetical Jon Snows instead of Jon Snow. I know. Mm, yeah, and I briefly thought we were talking about Game of Thrones. Coronavirus has changed me. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here uh, virtually with Dara Lynn from ProPublica and Jane Coaston from Vox.com. We've gonna, got a feel-good white paper for you at the end of the episode to bring... Feel-good environmental justice white papers. Ooh. Yes, cheer and justice to your life. Um, but right now we wanted to talk about opening up the economy, which is... Um, it looks like it's going to happen. I mean, the, the the state of Georgia is taking measures to sort of relax restrictions uh, starting quite rapidly. Some red states never went into sort of full closure of non-essential businesses. We should also back up just for a second. And I think that when we're having this conversation about opening up the economy and we've seen these small protests taking place, there's this idea that like opening up the economy means everybody is going to the bar we're all going to party in the streets. This is what's going to happen. That is not what is happening. That is not what the plan is. Even in Georgia, where Georgia is like, you can go to the hairdresser and maybe go to the gym, but these other things are just not options for you. We're not, we may not be going to restaurants, for example. And we'll get more into it, but polling shows that Let's keep in mind that many of the restrictions that most Americans are dealing with right now started before states issued orders at all. Restaurants were closing, gyms were closing and switching to Zoom before all this happened. And that will likely continue on afterwards, especially as polling indicates that most Americans wouldn't go back to a crowded concert or to a movie theater even if restrictions were open. So the entire open up, shut down the economy argument is a little bit of a fallacy. What we're talking about more is kind of, okay, how do we begin to get on the road to get back to something that we recognize as being normal-ish? Right. I mean, I think that as true as all of that is about the importance of kind of voluntary action in, you know, quote unquote, opening up the economy. I mean, the other kind of fundamental dynamic here is that there are people who are able to do their jobs right now remotely 
largely white collar workers. And so, you know, whose employment is not being directly affected by the stay at home order per se, even as, you know, other knock on effects of the coronavirus pandemic do have a large impact on the economy. And there are service sector employees who are working in places of business where the stay-at-home order does mean that they're not doing as much business. And so their jobs are theoretically the ones that you're trying to protect by relaxing stay-at-home restrictions. But of course, those are exactly the people whose jobs aren't dependent on whether the governor says they can go into work. They're dependent on whether anyone chooses to come in. So... In policy terms, right, um, Ezra and I did an episode where we reviewed a couple sort of big reopening plans. Um, And one came from mostly people with the Center for American Progress, which is a big Democratic Party aligned think tank. And one came from a bunch of people who are affiliated with American Enterprise Institute, which is a big sort of Republican aligned think tank. And the two plans were pretty similar. I mean, they, they differed in detail, but like broadly speaking, they both called for demonstrated evidence that case volumes were falling before a state opened up. They were calling for sort of interstate cooperation when there's metropolitan areas that cross state boundaries, which is pretty common from Kansas City and points east in the United States, although not on the West Coast. And they called for the establishment of regimes of testing, contact tracing, and then some kind of centralized isolation, case isolation system. None of that, right, that last batch of things, like that has not happened anywhere. Massachusetts has taken some baby steps toward creating a contact tracing and an isolation system, but everybody else is in the, like, scramble for tests mode, right, where Larry Hogan is married to a Korean woman, and he's the governor of Maryland, and he seems to have successfully used that relationship to get his hands on, like, a secret stash of South Korean COVID-19 tests that arrived at BWI airport to great fanfare. So the CAP AEI criteria for opening up are not met anywhere. And I would also add in there, um, I took a look at the Heritage Foundation. They have a National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, and we'll probably we'll talk about that in a little bit because a lot of their ideas have to deal with eliminating regulations that impact, quote unquote, small businesses. But even the first part of their plan should say, we'll return to a more normal level of business activity only after stabilizing the healthcare system, establishing enhanced testing, reporting, and contact tracing, and following CDC guidelines on mitigation, which again, is not yet happening. Right. So the the Trump administration put out its own three-phase opening up plan, which... um, Donald Trump has, frankly, a lot more influence over what Republican Party politicians do than some panel of experts that AEI assembled. And their system does not have that, like, contact tracing, testing, and case isolation element to it. They're they're not against it, but they are asking states to look at just sort of crude quantitative metrics, where the key thing to move from phase zero to phase one is that they want to see a 14-day period when you have a clearly declining trajectory of 
COVID-19 cases. They they go through a range. They're, they're reasonably sophisticated about how do you measure that because, you know, your case volumes can go up or down depending on how many tests you do. So it's it's not sloppy, but they have a, a much lighter criteria than the outside experts did, which is like if your cases are going down, then you start opening up, which is a kind of obviously an invitation to ping-ponging back and forth, right? The reason the other plans say you should establish a comprehensive test, trace, and isolate framework is that the idea is that you should be able to sustainably run a more open economy. If you're saying, look, as long as things are pointing in the right direction, you can ease off restrictions, well, then things will start pointing in the wrong direction and you'll probably have to go back. But at any rate, that's what they say. Phase one opening According to the Trump administration, white collar workers still work at home. Schools stay closed. Bars stay closed. But personal services like hair and nail salons, that kind of thing, gyms and and yoga studios, stuff like that can open back up. And restaurants can resume sit-down service. And I thought most strikingly, they're calling for movie theaters to open back up. I was was most struck by the barbers, really. Barbers? (laughs) Well... I understand. I mean, obviously, podcast listeners, you can't see this, but uh, Louise is collectively a a less hairy crew than we were at the beginning of all this because Matt and I have both engaged in partial or total rage shaves. But, you know, I understand that it's annoying for people, but it's also kind of just logistically, that's a lot of hand and face contact. Right. I mean, I guess the the thing about, you know, barbershops and hair salons is that it's a very labor intensive sector. So a lot of people's jobs are at stake. Movie theaters, like to operate a movie theater, you have a lot of customers per person working there. So it seems it, it seems like the the risk relative to the number of jobs that are at stake in movie theaters is is low. Also, frankly, I don't think anyone's going to go to the movies. Like, like, regardless. Yeah, this again is getting out ahead of where people actually are in terms of their thinking about going to an event. I mean, this is if you're avoiding restaurants and if you're avoiding kind of that kind of gathering space, a movie theater seems like a thing you will not go to. Well, also, the the substitutes available for watching movies in a movie theater are really... I mean, the movie theater business has been trending downhill for 20 years for, like, fundamental structural reasons. Um, people would really like to get their hair cut. Absent the illness situation, like, obviously, people would return to... At any rate, my main point is, it's... I've been squinting at the Georgia data, because um, they, they are the sort of big state that seems to be going first in this. And... You could make the case that they meet this sort of laxer Trump administration criteria, but it's not obvious to me that they do. I mean, it's a it's a real borderline kind of situation where whether their case volumes are trending downwards has a lot to do with whether do you think the weekend results are reliable? How much do you care about the fact that their positivity rate of their tests is not going down? Like it's. They say that, well, because they're doing slightly more tests, that's why they're having slightly more positives. And like, really, they're down. And I mean, that might be right, but it's a it'll be interesting to look at. And I think it reflects fundamentally that a lot of people in more conservative areas of the country have looked at 
what's happened and have decided, in part because New York City officials are also saying this, that New York City specific factors are the real driver of that catastrophe. And that if you're talking about a metro area that doesn't have people riding the subway, that doesn't have lots of people living in apartment buildings where they're all touching elevators um, or living in cramped conditions, as is often the case in the the working class parts of Queens where things have gotten really bad, that basically a, a warmer, sprawlier state like Georgia just doesn't have that much to worry about sort of intrinsically. And so there's no real need for them to worry that easing off restrictions will cause test volumes to explode. There's some reason to believe each of the component elements of that theory, but that's a big risk, right? That's like a real rickety house of cards, I think, in terms of where the evidence lies. New Orleans is not like a high-density transit-oriented city, and they got they got really slammed. Now, that's Mardi Gras, obviously, but the virus still spreads. Right. I mean, I think that we've learned epidemiologically that, you know, yes, more cramped facilities are going to be key hotspots here. But in most cases, people do go into and out of those cramped living spaces. Like the rest of the country does have nursing homes. The rest of the country does have jails and prisons. And, you know, more to the point, uh, people who work at jails and prisons and therefore go home to places that aren't jails and prisons. Uh, So it, it does seem that that logic only goes so far. But what's really struck me in thinking about Georgia is that last Monday, Governor Kemp was saying, well, just because of the the kind of timeline of this, we can expect that our peak is going to be later than most other states. So if you think about the timing of going over the course of a week from we think that things are still going to be rising here even when they're falling elsewhere to actually we're on track for a 14-day decline in caseload. That's a radical reassessment. And it's actually, it's you're seeing a lot of governors, even governors that are not taking action in the same way that Georgia is just yet, rhetorically kind of compressing their timelines for when they're going to start talking about reopening. Uh In California, Governor Newsom said last week at a press conference, you know, ask me in two weeks where the metrics are, and then successfully, you know, kind of got successfully pushed to say, okay, I'm going to give another update middle of this week. You're hearing even in states where governors are, are still being very aggressive in keeping things shut down, they're starting to keep hope alive in a more active rhetorical way than they were previously. And it's hard to look at that and not think that they're feeling a political pressure to start talking about reopening in a way that didn't exist a week ago. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because we see this in Ohio with Republican governor and in Maryland with a Republican governor. But so much of this pressure has again been aimed at states with Democratic governors. One of the biggest challenges here, as I, I keep reiterating, is that While governors are responding to political pressure, that's been very much of a top-down political pressure. It's Stephen Moore and a host of other kind of conservative economists who are like, we got to go right back in. People dying is bad, but people die all the time. That's not where most people are at. That's not where most voters are at. That's not where most Republicans are at in terms of how they're thinking about this. And the idea, again, that like, 
red states will open and then everyone will just flood back to bars and barbershops and their economies will respond in this specific way. It's, it just seems to be putting the cart out in front of several horses. So on the other hand, we know that people take cues about how bad things are from elites, right? And so there is, and for for better or worse here, right? It's on the one hand, you can look at what, say, Colorado Governor Polis is saying where he is, he's doing, you know, he's he's still in practice being very cautious, but he's starting to, you know, he's kind of starting to keep keep hope alive and go, this is a responsible action to take if you don't believe that the public health threat has passed and you do believe that we need to keep things shut down, but you, you know, want to deal with this political pressure. On the other hand, there does seem to be a, a dynamic where the more that Republican leaders and conservative elites say that it is important for states to reverse their actions and to allow economic activity to continue, the more appetite there seems to be among people who listen to those elites for engaging in those behaviors. <laughs> when Florida opened the beaches back up over the weekend, there were a lot of people who went to the beach. Uh, in California, Ventura County is, you know, just opened up golf courses and parks and, you know, had to, like neighboring counties had to warn people, please don't go to the golf courses in Ventura County because flooding it isn't the point. People really do take appear to be taking cues from leaders about what is safe and what isn't safe. Well, and, you know, one thing that's sort of at work here, right, is that both things can be true. If you say, OK, people can go back to sit down restaurants and 70 percent of the population resumes going to restaurants and they do so at 70 percent of their pre-crisis volume. Right. The problem economically is that restaurants can't stay in business half open, which if you do the math, right, that's that's what you're saying. It's, you would have a 50 percent fall in your customer base. But at the same time, most people would be going back to restaurants most of the time. Right. So you can be caught in this kind of dead zone where people are like, all right, we're going back to normal. We're just being a little bit more cautious than we were before. And that can still devastate the business models of all kinds of small shops and things, but also pose some real public health risks. Because right. it's especially because, you know, it's easy to th think about, oh, OK, if you were a maximally optimistic behavioral economist, you would say, well, you know, people have an intuitive sense of what a safe distance is at this point. And so they're unlikely to go to restaurants if the restaurant looks crowded enough that they would be violating social distancing guidelines. But of course, there are also the people who are making the food who you're, you know, you can't perfectly titrate how many line chefs, line cooks you have on any given shift due to how many people are coming in. That's not how, you know, kitchens work. And so those people are going to be in close quarters regardless of how many people are in the front of the restaurant. So there's kind of this like terrible no win situation where the people who are more economically vulnerable are facing the greatest public health risk. And we also don't know enough scientifically about exactly what goes on. Like, I saw one study that suggested that a person sitting near an air conditioner vent was able to get their droplets, like, sucked up through the thing and spread around the whole place. That air conditioner study is wild. We're totally putting that in show notes. If you haven't seen this, you really should. I mean, nothing that we know about this virus is dispositive, but it's one 
one of the more eye-opening findings I've seen in some time. If that's true, it carries a number of implications, one of which is that, like, whenever restaurants reopen, they should be prohibited from running air conditioners and that all kinds of facilities should do that. But nobody, as far as I know, is putting those that kind of rule in place. Right. So so like one thing the Georgia order says is like this, that and the other thing with appropriate social distancing. So I assume when they reopen churches in Georgia, they're going to tell people, you know, don't don't pack the pews. Right. There's going to be some kind of spacing. Um, It's really hot in Georgia in the summer. If it's true that air conditioning can spread the virus around, then having a half-empty church in which people are sitting distant from each other, but viruses are circulating around through an air control system, is not going to do any good. Now, I, I don't know. Like, will churches run AC in Georgia in the summer? I have no idea. Is that air conditioning study correct? I also don't really know. And there's like a million things like that where The impact of heat and humidity on spread, the impact of ultraviolet light from the sun. There's suggestive information about all of this, but it's not the kind of situation where we have rock solid science over decades of study, but now suddenly the outbreak is upon us. And so we can bust out our like coronavirus guidelines. And as long as everyone adheres to them, they'll be okay. What we have is like, 50 pieces of suggestive information, some of which contradict each other, none of which seems solid enough that people want to put the force of law behind them. And so we can hope that our sort of best practices guesstimates work, but we don't we don't know. On a side note, I'm really looking forward to the first ever church fan coronavirus spread study, because if anyone has ever been in an unair conditioned church in August, you know that the, you got to start fanning as fast as humanly possible or else you will pass out. Yeah, I have so many questions about religious practices, to be honest. Like, as- we could do an entire separate episode just on the debate happening among Catholics about whether or not if you are restricted from receiving communion, like what does does that mean for the state of your eternal soul? That, that and among separate... Episcopalians on passing yes. the peace, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That, that get, twelve Episcopalians left episode. in the U.S. But I, but I do think again, I think Matt makes a really smart point that this is not a Jon Snow cholera epidemic situation where it's like, oh, if we just stop people from using this well, problem solved. It's as if there were many wells and we're not sure how the wells work and we're not sure how cholera works and we've got a bunch of John Snows all walking around thinking like, how best do we do this? And more importantly, how do we get people to do it? Because I was just thinking about, okay, if you ask people to be socially distant, if anyone has gone for a walk or a run in any major city, we're aware that there, while there are many, many people who are practicing social distancing, there are many people who are absolutely not. And I think that that's been that's one of the challenges here. And I brought this up um, in our last conversation that there's what what epidemiologists have to say. There's what public health officials have to say. And there's what people are doing and would do. And what we have to deal with is that you've got about 70 to 80 percent of Americans who are saying, based on polling, that they are practicing social distancing, that they are working to stop the spread and flatten the curve. You've still got about 20 percent for various reasons, including just a lack of basic information, who are not. 
And the 20% aren't really going to, it's not, that number seems to me as if one that's not necessarily going to go up, but it's probably not going to go down. And I think that that's something to be thinking about when you are thinking, if you look at all three of the plans we've discussed from CAP, from AI, and from Heritage, which we'll put in the show notes, all of them rest on the assumption that the 20% of people who will not do anything are just going to kind of exist. And you've seen that from, um, some of the people who are involved in these kind of top-down protests saying like, well, maybe coronavirus will just be something we always have to deal with. I spoke with the president of FreedomWorks, uh, which is a conservative organization that was involved with kind of the launch of the Tea Party back in 2009. And he was saying, you know, coronavirus, is this will just be the way it is for years now. But I don't think he meant coronavirus will be the way it is, so we're just going to be wearing masks and social distancing forever. I think he meant kind of in the... You know how some people get the flu and some people don't get the flu and you get a flu shot or you don't get a flu shot, but everybody just keeps doing things as usual. And it's it's a really complicated needle to thread here. We should probably take a break and we should probably talk more a little more about those protests. But I did want to say, Jane, I can't believe that you talked about multiple hypothetical Jon Snows instead of Jon Snow. I know. Mm, yeah. And I briefly thought we were talking about Game of Thrones. Coronavirus has changed me. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, Shane, I will say I did not really understand what was going on here until I read your interview with Richard Epstein, which I think did not get 
as much circulation on Twitter as Isaac Chotner's interview with Richard Epstein, but delved deeper into the true psyche here, which is that at a certain point, he starts going off about fiscal stimulus. Epstein is a a very important conservative uh, law professor, constitutional thinker, the author of a memo that has been a sort of a rallying cry for conservative opener-ups. He's not an expert in epidemiology or in economics, but economic policy is closer to his wheelhouse because uh, a lot of his legal theories about economic regulation. And something you see in that interview is that he believes very strongly that as a general principle. Fiscal stimulus to help an economy in a recession is a bad idea. And a lot of conservative people believe this, right? That that this is a a bad left-wing idea that whenever the economy goes into a recession, they come in with the, we're going to boost our UI benefits, we're going to give money to state and local governments, and we're, we're going to keep things together that way. And that rock-solid conviction that not only are recessions bad, which everybody thinks, but that stimulus to address the recession makes things even worse, that puts you in a profound intellectual box. Because I'm saying, look, the recession is bad, but if the government does the right things, we can support people. Um, and he's saying, no, like if we try to support people, that's that's only exacerbating the damage. And so I, I saw, um, thanks to uh, J.W. Mason, wrote a blog post uh, pointing to uh, a London Review of Books uh, article about um, a, a new book about uh, plague in 17th century Italy. And they quote as sort of a, a diarist at the time who's complaining. They, they had this program to keep people in quarantine and then give them a ration of food every day. And and some rich people in Florence were upset. They said, quote, this would give the poor the opportunity to be lazy and lose the desire to work, having for 40 days been provided abundantly for all their needs. And, you know, so that's a that's an old idea, right, that if we sort of idle workers because of uh, the sickness, and then we put them on the dole to make sure that they're okay, that that's going to do long-term harm to the fabric of society, which requires people to believe that they must work or they will starve, and that we don't want to break that sort of, that routine, that habit of mind. And, And I think when you see that it's like Stephen Moore, and it's the Club for Growth, and it's Randy Barnett, another very libertarian uh, law professor. You see more and more that this is an economic doctrine. It's not a it's not a dissident group in the public health community. It's a dissident group in the economics community who don't want to abridge the free market to cope with the fallout from shutdowns. So they want to open us back up. And then you can say, hey, like, go out and earn your daily bread. And that's where I think the point you were raising, Jane, that like, you can't make people go to the restaurants, right? Like if you if you yank the safety net out from workers and business owners, if you tell them like, we're not forcing you to stay closed. If you can't attract customers and you fail and you need to lay everybody off, that's on you. Like, that's a really bad outcome because i don't think i don't think opening up will work 
It's also frankly true that even if you guarantee that revenues don't drop or you can minimize the reduction in revenues the businesses are taking in, you can't guarantee that they're going to retain their workforce levels. Like, you know, we're already seeing waves of reporting about, you know, not only which companies got money out of the PPP, but what those companies are doing. And it is true that because there wasn't any, you know, and obviously I'm not the people who are the the fiscal conservatives who are against, you know, stimulus in a recession weren't necessarily the ones who were advocating for handing out money to businesses anyway. But even if you are retaining as much as you can, the economic activity that like means that businesses are earning money the good, honest way, they could still be in a position to lay off staff, if nothing else, because businesses really don't like uncertainty. And if you think that it's possible that there could be a second peak in infection cases and that this could all happen again, you might want to protect against that possibility. But thinking about it as a a matter of conservative economics just was a total light bulb moment for me because it it the protests that we've been seeing at state capitals over the last week have gotten a lot of comparison, I think, on on both sides to the Tea Party on the left, because it's a narrative that what's being portrayed as a grassroots populist movement is, in fact, the creation of, you know, some business elites and conservative conservative media ecosystem uh, on the right, because, it, you know, it's being seen as an organic response to, to quote unquote tyranny. But it, it really does seem like it does have the bones of the Tea Party, despite the fact that what actually started the Tea Party was the response to the 2009 recession, not a, you know, yes, a response to recession, but not a response to any kind of public health threat. And like those protests, there's an ideological narrative being grafted onto them by the conservative elites who are saying, oh, yes, these are people who are extremely concerned about government growing too big. And then you have the concerns that are actually being voiced by the protesters themselves, which are not that. And getting back to the point we were making about the information economy earlier, very few of the people who are endorsing these protests in kind of conservative media elites are saying it is true that the virus is a lie and Bill Gates is trying to impose vaccines on everyone by telling them that the coronavirus is bad. But that is a sentiment that is being heard, you know, when reporters interview protesters. Of course, this gets a little bit tricky because we really have to trust the uh, press on the ground for these things because obviously there isn't a whole lot of like intermittent, there isn't a whole lot of like passerby contact with protesters at this point. And there is something of a tendency to, to, you know, to nut pick, to find the people at the rally who are saying the most outrageous things. But the stuff being voiced by like the candidates for state legislature in Ohio who are leading some of the protests there are not at all concerns about, you know, spending money in a recession. They're concerns about government tyranny that come from a totally different place. Right. The people who are talking about like mandatory vaccinations. It was interesting because there was a a person who's running for Ohio's legislature who basically made the like, we'll all die one day point, which is always something you like to hear that's incredibly reassuring. But one of the challenges of this is that you could even see with the Tea Party that there, there are two things can be true at once. The Tea Party was reflective of the views of some people, and it was also reflective of specific top-down group efforts to encourage those views in a very specific way. And then that's why coverage matters. That's why something I thought was interesting when um, I spoke with someone from Media Matters, which is a left-leaning organization that covers the right, 
is the people who are doing this will talk a lot about how if we just go back to work and practice social distancing and wear masks, like that's what these protests are about. And then you go look at the protests and I'm like, there are people carrying signs saying no masks, no vaccine. Now, again, it's challenging because that's how protests work, is that the person who is the loudest and who may not be a representative of the entire group's opinion tends to get a fair share of media attention because that's how that works. But there is very much of a sense that you are getting from this that the what people want these protests to be about and what the protests are actually about are two different things. And I think that this actually gets us back to something I keep thinking about and how Donald Trump plays into this because Trump kind of tweeted liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia and talked about all these states and how they need to be liberated or something. But it's weird because these states are operating under the guidelines of the CDC, guidelines that Trump has encouraged. So there is a moment here that I, I joked yesterday that it's very much of a if only the little father knew kind of moment where it's like Trump is somehow encouraging. Hey, can you can you can you explain what that's a reference to? I believe it is Tsar Nicholas II and a reference to the Winter Revolution, which was an in incident in 1905 outside of the Winter Palace in which a bunch of people gathered to ask for bread and food and were shot upon by soldiers. But as I remember, the story is that people were like, oh, if only the czar knew what was happening, he would stop this without knowing that the czar had ordered the soldiers to shoot on the protesters. I would c uh, compare this to the uh, the Mirror and the Light, the third novel in the Wolf Hall trilogy, but I won't spoil that for anyone who hasn't gotten to it yet. Although, come on, we're in like week five of quarantine. What are you doing? I thought of exactly that, this this at least thing people say about about Russian history when I read um, uh, Sean Sean Davis from The Federalist saying that, like, Democrats and the media knew that they couldn't take Trump down with the roaring economy. So they cooked up these millions of job losses to to bring him down, which, like, even if you 100 percent accept that that's true. Right. That like there is no interest in public health here, that every single person in the media and every single elected Democrat is just engaged in a deliberate conspiracy whose only purpose is to maximize economic harm. The fact is that Donald Trump put out these reopening guidelines that while softer than the ones that the public health experts I rely on still imply that most American states cannot reopen now. Like he did that right on the advice of the people he speaks to. And there's this duality because the conservative movement is pushing what they know is a minority narrative. And Trump is shading in that direction. But he's not embracing the idea that, like, this is just the flu or it was no big deal and it was wrong to shut down in the first place. So then the explanation of what's happening here gets very confused, but it's it's aided by the fact that Trump has for years, both of you guys have talked about this a lot, like maintain this posture where like what he says and what he his government does are two entirely different things. I wouldn't say entirely different, but they're like, they're loosely related. Right, right. There are times when what Donald Trump says 
that subsequently directs government action, there are less frequent times in what he in in which what he says uh, reflects existing government action. And then there are times when he just is is freelancing and frankly acting, you know, acting as a media figure uh because he cares a lot about ratings despite him telling you that he doesn't care about ratings but i think that that's that's such an important point here because noah rothman wrote a piece in commentary arguing like can trump take all sides and i think he argues that this could be a successful strategy to essentially pretend as if he's both in total control but not in total control and all the states should be liberated but all the states should do what he wants i disagree with that because this seems to be a strategy that even explaining it out loud i have confused myself but i do think also that there is a sense of attempting to lead a lot of conservative and Republican voters with the carrot of a hypothetical reopening that restores everything to normalcy, that the carrot that many of these Republican voters, even Fox News voters, as shown by recent polling, don't necessarily want to do. And it seems to just be attempting to lead people towards something and having most Americans, understandably, because this is not a general recession. This is a pandemic. A pandemic is a separate global phenomena that we have dealt with again and again throughout history. A lot of people, I think, have accidentally become bubonic plague experts over the last couple of weeks. And if you want to talk about that, you can email me separately because I have takes. Fooled around and learned about plague. Like you do. But I do think that there is this idea that this is another thing that Trump will just somehow come up with a genius nine dimensional plan to conquer or his secret Twitter will be secretly genius again. But that's it's a plague. It's an actual disease. It's I feel like it's there's something about how we and I thought about this when I spoke with Richard Epstein and I've thought about this when I see plans coming um, or ideas coming from people on the left that we have attempted to take coronavirus and just paste it on to wherever we're thinking at the present. You know, if you think stimulus is bad, congratulations. You think stimulus is bad. If you think that this is an opportunity to reshape the economy in the shape of the Green New Deal or along those specific imperatives, congratulations. You think that now. Like, it's weird. There was how actually a really excellent thread yeah. on the Weeds Facebook group where one of the members uh, asked, I'm sick of hearing that this has confirmed all of people's existing views. Right. What's something you've changed your mind on? Because, yeah, no one is very few people are saying that. Right. Exactly. It, it, there's no way that this many people's priors could be this confirmed. But, you know, so as far as Trump's role goes, I think you're exactly right, Jane, that this is that. The that Trump isn't simply acting as a media commentator. He is, you know, a media actor and a trusted elite for a for a segment of people in the country. I think that one of the conclusions, if you compare these protests to, you know, the polling that we were talking about earlier in the episode, showing that this isn't really a that there is no silent majority uh, that's in favor of reopening the country aggressively is that there are actually very few people who are both in favor of reopening the country and aren't willing to risk their health right now by showing up to protests to say so, which is to say there aren't a whole lot of people who are in this, you know, personally responsible social distancing, but don't have the government mandate closures lane, despite that being the lane that, you know, some conservative elites are are kind of grafting onto the protests. But the other, you know, kind of worrisome conclusion here is that, and this is something that I think has implicitly informed a lot of the political discussion here, even though it can, you know, it, it's it's difficult to talk about in a way that isn't 
kind of macabre or gruesome in one form or another, but like the fact that people who are most likely to be consuming a lot of conservative media and trusting the president to, you know, trusting what the president says, what Donald Trump says, more than they're following what his government is doing, are themselves people who are disproportionately in high-risk groups, primarily people who are above 60 years old. And so there is a very real concern that if Donald Trump continues to do the, well, as a head of government, I'm going to take a moderate and responsible approach. But as Don from Queens, I'm going to be calling into the radio show and saying that this is that, you know, everybody needs to get back on the streets as soon as possible. Then the people who are most likely to listen could be doing themselves a public health disservice. I also think, though, that it's important to say that, like, one of the challenges of this, and we've seen this, um, Matt just tweeted about the racial disparities in coronavirus in D.C., which are astronomical. This is hitting African-Americans far harder. And part of that is because African-Americans in D.C. and elsewhere are generally working in essential industries or they have jobs that working remotely isn't going to work or they're just more likely to be living in multi-generational homes, which I think is something that uh, a lot of people haven't brought up, but just kind of the intra-family spread, which it's funny because I've seen people saying like, oh, that's a good thing. You just stick it to a family. And I'm like, I don't that sounds bad. That sounds extremely bad, especially if you care about older people and like being around them. But I think that it's worth noting that we have so many separate groups that are all at extreme risk of coronavirus. And because of how segmented our information economy is, Van Jones put out a CNN op-ed a couple of weeks ago, and there's actually been a couple of CNN presentations just on the impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans, because there was this meme going around for a couple of weeks, and you know I saw it and a bunch of other people did, that Black people couldn't get coronavirus. And Van Jones himself uh, said in the op-ed that you know, the, he had a relative, a, a relative he considered to be very well-informed, tell him like, oh, we have antibodies against it, so we can't get it. And so I think that it's sometimes when we talk about dis misinformation or disinformation, we think about specific groups, but all of these groups have them. The conspiracy theories that I think a lot of people tie to a specific segment of the far right are not necessarily, they're not right-left conspiracy theories. They're in-group, out-group conspiracy theories, because you're as likely to see people on the far left on Facebook railing against Bill Gates and attempting to tag people with vaccines as you are on the far right, because uh, the conspiratorial mindset, regrettably, knows no social or political lane. So I want to explain all things. The, the conspiracy that Jane has alluded to a couple of times here is that Bill Gates's public health work is a facade and that the real agenda here is to use max vaccination programs to inject people with some kind of um, like nanobots, I guess, right, that will will allow him or the government or somebody to to monitor us through these microchips in our bloodstream. Yeah. Which more or less. Yeah. And um, I wrote something on conspiracy theories and pandemics because when I saw that going around, I'm like, of course it's going around. Of co of course it is because pandemics and conspiracy theories have a long, long, long history. But 
What got me about the Bill Gates one is that no one has yet been able to explain to me how he would be able to get this done while also not having. Jane. I know. I know. No, I mean, I, this is I'm, I just want to ask some questions. I, I feel like this is tempting a very dangerous fate. This is right up there with with Matt's like chimps filling out the census hot take. Like, actually, if people were to put more thought into this, that's bad. We don't necessarily want that. I That's I, true. I'm going to put in a plug for Jesse Walker's book, The United States of Paranoia, which is a really good history of conspiracy theories in the United States. Um, but, you know, it, as because people are still at home and are going to need more things to read. But let's take a break. Once, we're, once, we're, once we're, we're down to the nanobots, I think it's it's time to turn to the white paper. <laughs> Fair enough. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. We have today, what caused racial disparities in particulate exposure to fall? New evidence from the Clean Air Act and satellite-based measures of air quality. This is Janet Curry, uh, John Voorhees, and Reed Walker. Um, they are doing, uh, there's some some cool, some cool methodology here. Um, but I, I would say, like, peeling back the layers of the onion, one thing that has happened in the 21st century is that the life expectancy gap between Black and white Americans has narrowed. Um, and, you know, pe- people wonder why that is. Um, one reason for it, it turns out, is that African-Americans are exposed to more air pollution than white people are and have been for a long time. But that pollution gap has narrowed quite a bit. Um, and it accounts for, I think, 7% of the closure in life expectancy. But that then raises the question of, well, why did the pollution gap change? Uh, because you can imagine lots of reasons, right? Like if underlying economic disparities changed or housing segregation for some other reason ameliorated, then you would expect there to not be African-Americans in these high pollution areas. Um, or you could sometimes see things, right, like it, it's well documented that the gentrification dynamics, specifically in Brooklyn, have actually put a lot of white people into very high pollution areas. There were a lot of industrial sites in Brooklyn, and they're mostly obsolete now. So the easiest part of Brooklyn to turn into new housing is former industrial sites. A certain amount of environmental cleanup and remediation goes in. They don't like build apartments on top of toxic waste dumps. But the old pollution settles in the parks that were near them. So so a lot of the gentrification has actually moved a substantial, uh, I would say, a high profile in the media group of college educated white people into high pollution areas. So that could be the main driver of the dynamic. The finding here is that neither of those things are the case, that it, it, there have been some African-Americans 
moving into suburban neighborhoods with lower pollution. There have been some white people moving into center city neighborhoods with more pollution. But neither of those are like the big statistical drivers. Instead, the main factor, uh, they use satellite imaging and, and all kinds of things to show this, is that the dirtiest places in America got a lot cleaner because of the way clean air mandates work. And African-Americans continue to disproportionately live in those very dirty places. So cleaning them up had a huge racial justice sort of equalizing impact, even though nothing in the way the statute is written like says that that's the goal or, or anything. This is not like you will change the way you think about everything in life uh, as a result of it. But but it's kind of cool, um, especially because it was um, it was hard to assemble the the data. You need like modern satellites and things. You can actually see the air pollution because the traditional monitors have been pretty spotty and not really let us see it. Right, right. I mean, they talk in this paper about how traditionally you measure exposure to pollution by just saying, well, how close are you to a an industrial site, which like isn't the most helpful when you consider, one, that vehicle exhaust is also a major source of pollution. Two, it doesn't necessarily cover the question of what happens, you know, how do you figure out which sites are the ones that are producing the the most pollutants and what, ha you know, when, when are those changing? But what I love about this as a feel-good story about government regulation, because like the title references the Clean Air Act and the time period they're talking about, you know, the, the Clear Act, which was passed in, what, 1970. And they're talking about a time period from 2000 to 2015, saying that, you know, there's a big gap in the data in 2000 and it gets better over the, you know, it, the, the disparity alleviates over the course of the 15-year period. And I personally was a little bit confused about how a law that was 30 years old at the time the data window opened would be the big driver here. And the answer is that waves of more stringent regulation under the Clean Air Act, most notably one that was put into place in 1997, well, first regulated in 1997, but after a court battle didn't get put into effect in 2005, were really the deciding factor in getting some of the most polluted places in America a lot less polluted. And for one thing, I do find it fascinating that this regulation that turns out to have been extremely efficacious was the subject of exactly the kind of like big government battle that we have been talking about in the present day, but in retrospect, nobody really talks about, you know, oh, it's really terrible that they started regulating this size of particle at this level of de of demand in 1997. But it, it also is kind of a good illustration that a robust piece of legislation is going to allow for changes in regulatory monitoring that are going to prevent problems that people weren't even necessarily thinking about in 1970, like the racial disparities of pollution. Right, right. That the the Clean Air Act became an umbrella for a host of pieces of specific legislation. And it's interesting because I think that the movement, you know, how pollution impacts people and how the movement of people impacts that the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of 
anti-pollution efforts is really interesting just in terms of how you think about why people are living where they are. They make the point of African-Americans who are moving out of polluted urban areas, which means that then they saw fewer of the gains of that cleanup because they could no longer afford to live in the polluted urban areas that they lived in before because of structural racism. Life is fun. Just so much fun. Fair enough. <laughs> but that, that's it. Like, I, I mean, I guess, you know, one takeaway I, I would have here, right, is that there, there's been a big, I would say, a, like a real increase in emphasis on racial justice topics among white liberals mm-hmm. um, in, in, in recent years for some, like, psychodynamic reasons. I mean, and again, talking about the Delta, I mean, it's obviously like... African-American actors have always cared about racial justice issues. So that's like one reason that the Delta there is is small. But when you are advocating on behalf of people who are not you or on behalf of communities that you are not a member of, right, there's sometimes a tension between it's like, what is efficacious in helping that community versus what is efficacious in demonstrating your personal level of concern? for that community, right? And and one of the things you see with this Clean Air Act, which like I think was perceived at the time as like a pretty like bougie white suburbanite kind of concern is that just like factually cleaning up the most polluted areas like had incredible benefits for low-income African American neighborhoods and it's not obvious to me. I would actually say, no, it's pretty obvious that portraying it as a racial justice initiative would likely have been counterproductive in winning that kind of political fight, that like clarifying to white Americans living in the suburbs how little they stood to gain from this and how much the benefits were going to come to African Americans living in central city neighborhoods would not have been helpful. And that, like, painting this, like, broad, race-brined vista of, like, we're cleaning up the air, which, like, pulls insanely well. Like, I, I've seen people looking at this and, like, they're trying to get Democrats to talk more about non-climate pollution issues because the polling on it is, like, through the roof. But, like, it's an incredibly potent racial justice issue that I think is probably best advanced by just accepting that people really want to see the air be cleaner rather than by, like, trying to foreground all these topics. I mean, of course, I'm doing it myself. But, you know, if you listen to this show, don't tell your friends. (laughs) I would combine your kind of finger waggy point about framing and Jane's depressing point about displacement and say that the real lesson of the life of the Clean Air Act is you can't necessarily predict in one generation what consumer preferences of your group will be in the next generation. And so maybe, you know, totally neglecting center cities to abandon them to industrial sites and mass pollution isn't just not ideal for people who are living there now, but like might not be ideal if your children or your children's children decide that that's the hip new neighborhood where they really want to live. So maybe making decisions on behalf of everybody, you know, adopting a veil of ignorance view toward what the preferences of the future will be is a pretty, it might be a pretty good avenue to making universalist policies. I like that idea, Dara. That's far less depressing than every conclusion I was about to come to. It's a good news white paper. The people are living Yay. longer. It's great. 
We are all for living here, and it's it's not living if you don't uh, tell your friends to spend their quarantine time checking out uh, The Weeds and other fine Vox Media Podcast Network shows. Um, so thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and The Weeds will be back on Friday. <laughs>